Hello and welcome to the Maidcast, the official podcast of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, a series of lectures on video game history as part of the Maid's ongoing effort to preserve history through teaching and displaying playable exhibits of rare games and consoles. While life in the time of COVID has forced us to close our doors, the support of people like you has allowed us to continue to bring history to you through lectures like the one you hear in a few minutes. I'm Anthony. I'm Miles. I'm Chen. And I'm Red. This week, Alex talks with David Fox, another original Lucasfilm Games team member, founder of the original inspirations for The Maid, the Marin Computer Center, which was an interactive computer center up in Marin County. But before we jump into that, we will hop into a little bit of news. So we have a short news week today as far as everything else going. The equivalent consumer protection agency on the EU is suing Nintendo for their Joy-Con drift issues, uh, calling it like a planned obsolescence almost. Um, There's been thousands of reports of Joy-Con drift happening after just two years of use for the Switch. When was the Switch first released? Like 2015, 2016? It's been been a few years. 2017. 2017, wow. I know that people started complaining about Joy-Con issues right away. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, Joy-Con is, in my opinion, it's it's good, but it's it's lacking a kind of consistency. That's why I I buy a Pro-Con instead. We'll see how that goes, and we'll keep you updated if there's any new developments regarding that. But I know, Anthony, there is some new news uh, regarding KOTOR, uh, uh, third development of Knights of the Old Republic, right? Yeah, who's ready for KOTOR 3? Woo! I think everybody is. Yeah, so that's um, reportedly in the works. Uh, however, um, the developers will not be Bioware and EA. It'll be a new team. So uh, we'll see how that turns out. And there's also like the possibility, they're talking about the possibility of porting KOTOR 1 and 2 to current gen consoles. But it might, my opinion is it might just be easier to do a Demon Souls and remake the entire thing because of how old the original two games were. And unless they are like porting a newer port of those older games, which I don't even, I mean, what level of port do you need to reach before you just redo the game? I mean, the first Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic was released in 2003. Mm-hmm. And I played it a few years ago. And it really shows its age. The models are, to put it generously, um, simple. <laughs> the The voice acting is, I think, iconic, so you can't really cut that, but it's still kind of... Um, Flat, if you would say? It's a little rough around the edges. <laughs> I'm being generous because it is a great game. Um, <laughs> but I think sort of the bigger problem is the just the low textures, the uh, tools to just make the game look pretty and actually run well. Because I ran into a lot of crashes. Yeah, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see. Um, But kind of leading into uh, our guest, uh, Mr. David Fox, uh, he was one of the first people to... um, He helped work on Maniac Mansion originally, the fantastic game. Um, As you'll hear a little bit in the upcoming interview, he was the inspiration for uh, one of the things that thought not possible by one uh, Veronica when she was on uh, the interview talking about how she couldn't microwave the hamster uh, uh, in Maniac Mansion. uh, Mr. David Fox let us in on the way to actually do it. Um, So you might find that pretty exciting in this interview. 
but I think without further ado, we will throw it on over to Alex and David so they can talk a little bit about the Marin Computer Center and its interactive nature in inspiring the maid and a little bit more of Maniac Mansion tidbits. Uh, so here they are, uh, Alex and David Fox. Hello, and we're here today with David Fox. David is one of the original Lucas film games folks and responsible for many of the things we have been talking about, like Maniac Mansion and Zach McCracken and Labyrinth. David, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. As, as I, I said in our little pre-interview, you sort of inspired the maid in a roundabout way. I, I'd love it if you could explain what was the Marin Computer Center and why did you start it? Well, in around 1976, 1975, I was looking at the next thing I wanted to do and was really imagining a sort of interactive Disneyland, like a theme park where all the attractions were totally interactive. Nothing was canned that you'd essentially be going on these adventures and you'd learn things about yourself and come out a better person, almost like you just had a lucid dream that had a huge revelation for you. So, hey, hey, technology is expanding really fast. We should get there in 10 years. And so what, <laughs> what should I do to be ready so when we have the tech, we can do it? And first, I was thinking arcade, coin-op arcade, and that just didn't seem right. My wife is an educator, and I really wasn't really a programmer at the time. So the idea of like learning about programming and computers and the idea of doing this public access microcomputer center was what we were thinking of. and. We don't want to actually sell computers. Uh, we wanted to have like a membership where people would come in, rent time on our computers, very similar to what Lawrence Hall of Science was doing at the time, except they had teletypes. And the, the Loop Center also had, um, had a mini computer and CRTs. So we wanted to actually make the jump directly to microcomputers, which were just coming on the market at that time. So we went the nonprofit route. We tried to get grants and loans and weren't able to. I was only like 25 at the time, so 26, and had no assets, so we couldn't do that. But a friend of ours believed in it enough that he was willing to co-sign a loan to allow us to buy the equipment. And we got a, a, a lease on a beautiful public, a beautiful library of what used to be an elementary school that had closed down in Marin, you know, had super high ceilings, had a loft in it, and it already had study carousels, you know, for, for technology with plugs. So it was perfectly set up for this. And we ended up buying nine processor technology SOL-20s and one Equibox um, and all all were 8080 base. We looked at Apple IIs because they were just coming out around the same time in 1977 and actually went down to this meeting in South Bay and these two guys named Steve with a lot of hair were trying to sell me on the idea that I should get these, these Apple II computers. And I was convinced that we were going to be doing a lot of word processing as an application. And they only had uppercase. And I figured, okay, this is just not going to work. So even though they had color and sound and all sorts of other cool stuff, um, that was kind of the the mistaken choice I think we made. Um, so we ended up going for upper lowercase keyboard with really nice walnut trim on the sides. We ended up getting Apple IIs later. Over the next few years, we were running the center. We got some grants and ended up with a bunch of Atari computers that Atari granted us and some that were paid for by a grant for outreach by the um, Buck Foundation. Yeah, it was basically there for, I was there for four years, 
the loan was a five-year loan that we actually didn't pay off. And that was a great training ground for me to learn about games and coding. And, you know, we taught classes to people. Actually, I taught my wife programming, very painful for her to learn. Uh, She's totally not a programmer, but that was perfect because then she could teach other people from a non-programmer point of view and so made their classes very approachable. That's terrific. What did people think of this place? I mean, when, when somebody just stumbled in, I'm sure you got, this is Marin in the 70s, I'm sure there were some interesting reactions, right? Yeah, well, we, we ended up having a really great rollout. Um, there was some press there. Um, I think 700 people showed up the first day. And it obviously wasn't at that level ongoing, but we did, you know, we were pretty much solidly booked with birthday parties, field trips, that it came much became much more of a game playing area than programming was kind of interesting. So we'd end up with a bunch of kids that were our regulars who ended up becoming our assistants. We kind of traded time for their help. And we eventually did outreach where we take um, maybe four or five computers to a classroom and do classes there. The Ataris were much easier to do than the Sol-20s. Uh, what were some of the, the challenges that you faced? I mean, this is sort of a new thing, right? We have cyber cafes and all these things are now passe. But back then, this must have been some of the first times that half most of these people had seen computers, right? Yeah, it's true. Like in the, in the, uh, in the field trips that Annie would run, my wife, kids would come in and she'd ask the question, like, how many of you have ever seen or touched a computer? And one or two hands would be raised. And over that period, by the time we were done, it was totally reversed. Like by then, in just like three or four years, everyone had, either through us or through people buying home computers or schools getting computers or whatever. So I kind of saw this as a midwife project to get people into the computer era and just, you know, see how, how fun they could be. I, I think they were, you know, in a lot of cases, they were probably oversold. Like people thought they could, you know, buy a Radio Shack computer and learn learn to write a bookkeeping program that they could then use because there weren't a lot of off-the-shelf programs at the time. We also we had a good relationship with the local computer store um, since we weren't competing in any way. They would send people to us for classes. We would send people to them for buying the computers. The only area of competition might be magazines and books that we would sell. We also had a great relationship with various game companies, um, Adventure International, Scott Adams, ended up giving us a bunch of software that we could both review and rate for Creative Computing Magazine. But also I ended up doing conversions reports from the Radio Shack version that he originally created them for to Apple II. And we ended up writing, we ended up selling as Apple Spice, which is were extensions to AppleSoft Basic, which gave you the the if then else and string searches and other things that Scott had used in his code that weren't available. And we just use those as calls. And that helped. If we're going to talk programming, there's a few episodes ago that we went really deep with Chip about the origins of the compiled bytecode method of of sort of running uh, the scum engine. And we were really trying to trace down the actual origin of that inspiration. Could you help us with that? Probably not. Um, (laughs) The, the, um, my level of coding has always been very front end all the games I worked on, I was fortunate enough to have some computer geniuses on the project who could do, you know, the system code or the backend code. On my first game at Lucasfilm Games was Rescue on Fractalus. And I had both um, Lauren Carpenter, who was the computer division whiz, 
known for doing fly-through fractal landscapes, plus Charlie Counter, who ended up doing all the flight dynamics and cell animation routines and multi-sound channel stuff on the Atari. And I got to do things like the um, cockpit and the scenes to and from and all the gameplay balancing and scoring. And they just gave me hooks that I could use to to tie into their other code. The next game I did there was Labyrinth. That was probably the closest precursor to graphic adventures. It was a graphic adventure, but that was all done in 6502 assembly with you know by hand. And when Ron Gilbert started looking at doing Maniac Mansion, he started doing it that way, the same way we had done Labyrinth, and realized really fast that this was going to take forever. And that's when he and Chip had the conversation about creating a an interpreter um, that would make it so we could write our code in what looked like closer to English, and then it would get compiled down and be cross-platform also. So the only thing you had to really convert would be the you know the engine stuff on the computer, target computers. Then I guess the next question, the other question that was raised in another previous episode is, whose idea was it to allow the children to drown in the pool in Maniac Mansion, but not allow you to microwave the hamster? Well, you can microwave the hamster. <laughs> can you? Yes. That was my idea, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the, the pool thing was, I think, just an obvious, you have a pool, you have radioactive water and... You know, we hadn't come up with the you can't die in adventure games idea yet, but we were really adamant about making sure that any death was going to be telegraphed ahead of time. So it was more, let's avoid random death and have justified death was okay. So putting a, a glass of radioactive water in the, in the microwave and, and microwaving it and opening the microwave is going to kill you because there's a radioactive cloud of steam that you inhale and you die immediately and get buried in the in the front lawn. But the bit with the hamster, um, we had a hamster in the game, we had a microwave, and I just said, oh, shoot, I have to do this. <laughs> so I talked to, to Gary Winnick, who is the artist, about give me a frame of the microwave with, with red blotches on the door. <laughs> And I wired it up and then brought Ron in to, to see it. And, you know, he thought it was pretty funny. It's not something you're supposed to do in the game. I mean, it's not like a puzzle you have to solve. It's like more like a, you know, why can't it work? And only certain of the kids would actually do it. So I think it might be Sid and, uh, Ra Sid and Razor would do it, but the other ones wouldn't. That's the trick. My, my wife adores the game. It's her favorite game. And I, I had her on a previous episode and that was one of her questions. It's like... But she always chose the same three kids because she only knew how to solve it. With yeah. So now you have to go back with with some of the more edgy ones and see what they say about it. <laughs> That's wonderful. I, I I think that ended up getting through Nintendo's testing because it wasn't in line to complete the game, so they never tried it. Or maybe they tried it with one of the other kids, like your wife did. So I think at least the first release had that in, and then they because they found out that. It was there and they had us remove it, I think. At a later oh, release. okay. okay. I that makes that sense. Was but I wasn't involved with the port, so I'm not sure of all that. Doug Crockford would know. Certainly. Uh, so, uh, one of the th I don't know if you know this, but Zach McCracken is one of the most sought after collectors' PC games out there. Uh, as far as I know, it is the most expensive boxed PC game there is. It's not even the PC version, right? It's like uh, what the. Uh, the Apple II or something, or which I'm not sure which even platform. I'm. It was probably Com Commodore 64 was the first one that came out, but yeah. 
What can you tell us about the development process there? And what did you learn from Maniac Mansion that maybe was applied there? Well, I knew that I wanted to have a really expansive kind of a feeling in the game. Um, Rather than having multiple levels with different kids that you could play through like a Maniac Mansion in, in a very enclosed space, I wanted it to be worldwide and actually extraterrestrial. And I did want to have character switching, but I didn't want you to have to choose from a selection of characters. So that meant that much more of the game got played on a run-through. game might have seemed longer because of that, because it was all strung together in one game, as opposed to having different combinations of characters. Um, and I knew initially I wanted to do something new agey. Um, that was something I was really into. And, you know, going back to my original goal for, you know, back in the mid seventies where I wanted to see an interactive Disneyland kind of thing. I, I wanted something where, you know, I could introduce people to some concepts that might be a little out there, but, um, not as a indoctrination kind of way where just kind of quirky and fun and, oh, wow, I, I can mind link or I can, I can do teleportation. Um, you know, so some superpowers that had a new age kind of a feel to it and ended up having a meeting, a brainstorming session for two days with a friend of our general manager, Steve Arnold's named David Spangler up in, um, in the Seattle area. And he was a spiritualist and wrote a bunch of books on, and, and psychic and and all that so he knew it but he also wasn't um it, it wasn't precious to him so it was okay to, to get really crazy with these ideas so, so he ended up giving me a whole bunch of possible locations and concepts and things like could then try to figure out how to squeeze into the game and that's what i did the process of developing both that and maniac mansion and the engine it seems like that was a very iterative process you were very you could make a change to the game and see it very quickly was that the case and was that beneficial to allowing you guys to really sort of edit it and make it better all the time. And Yeah, I could see it doing it almost like in layers. When I look at the design doc um, some point afterwards, which I don't think I have anymore, I think it got lost somewhere. Most everything I had in the doc ended up there, but it had gotten much wackier and a lot more things were layered on top of it, a lot more humor, a lot, a lot of other things. And so, yeah, you could easily do that. We, we didn't have the idea of doing like wireframe rooms back then. Like when I worked with Ron on Thimbleweed Park, we did the whole game first is like in block, really crappy block graphics, uh, just to kind of lay out the environment and then the gameplay. Here, we just went straight into it and did it directly. I also worked, you should mention, I, I didn't do it all by myself. Matthew Kane, who was my co-designer after I brought him on, and he and I kind of split the rooms and the art and the, not the art, but the, the wiring of everything. And Gary did a lot of the art and Bucky did a lot of the art also. So it was, I think it was about a nine month project from start to finish, which seems like super fast right now, but Absolutely. Just didn't have a lot of space to store on the discs. The one thing we, we, we took the scum engine that we use in Maniac Mansion, Ron, made a bunch of changes for me that the concept of pseudo rooms, which basically have a room that looked like it acted like a separate room, but was all using the same art with different objects turned on and off to make it look different. Like all the, all the airports, for example, or the mazes, which we did a lot of <laughs> maybe too much. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, there's a hacker space now called pseudo room, by the way. Uh, okay. Uh, 
So I, I wanted to take the last few minutes and thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I wanted to w- ask you, what are you working on? And then as a, as a second question, like, do you have any advice for us trying to sort of replicate what you were doing back in the early days? Ooh, well, what I'm working on now is um, taking a game I did seven years ago called Rubeworks, which is based on Rube Goldberg's original cartoons. And the game was released for mobile and desktop in 2013. We've been adapting it for VR. So I have a version of it on the Quest, the first few levels that work really well now. And we're starting to finish off the levels, also working on a version for AR for the Unreal Lite. So that's part of what I'm doing. And I'm still really enamored with immersive entertainment. It's kind of nice to see that a lot of what I had envisioned back in the mid 70s is actually now it's all possible now. And, you know, if it weren't for COVID, you know, I'd probably be in VR centers doing, you know, the 10 or 15 minute immersive experiences a lot more. Um, The thing that Disney is doing with the Starship Hotel, I think is super exciting if it works the way I think it could. Um, I think it's called, is it called Star Cruiser? Yeah, it's Starship Hotel. I just looked it up. Wow, look at that. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Uh, but what about uh, running a space for the public? I mean, we, we've seen a very parallel growth here. We started, most of the kids that came in had never programmed before. And now most of the kids that come in have a little bit of experience, you know, in our programming classes. Like, what would you suggest for folks trying to sort of do what you did? Well, there's so many... If you're looking at adventure games, for example, um, you know, like Adventure Creator for Unity, or there's other um, adventure creation tools or systems that give you a lot of power and probably easier coding because it's a lot of it's not even line coding. I mean, just you're you're connecting things to each other, and I think you could do a lot there. I think the question is, um, you know, I mean end up with programmer art if you're not a programmer or if you can get teams together doing it to make it look better um that i'm impressed with what you could do with all that adventure creator for unity well david fox thank you so much for being here we very much appreciate your time and thank you for inspiring us all to try to make the world a better place through computing you're welcome thank you for inviting me all righty thank you david and alex you know, it'd be really interesting to get one of those, uh, you know, to get a, like a print still of the frame, the one of the two frames where you get the red splotches on that microwave from that hamster. Maybe I'm a little sadistic. Maybe I'm a... <laughs> you know, that's... Maybe I should seek some that help. That is a kind of mechanics you can no longer do it in the game industry nowadays. I mean... You can't really uh, get away with hiding a lot. I mean, <laughs> maybe you can uh, in a certain level of, I don't know, unless they hand it to some uh, code ripper that just dives through all the code to find out. It's like, there's a secret here. What is it? <laughs> I hope you guys enjoyed that. Also, the interactive nature, unfortunately, because of COVID, has kind of prevented us from doing one of our big kind of hands-on interactive experiences so you can actually see and be a part of these games. So we hope you guys uh, continue to support and listen to this so you can kind of be involved and we look forward to seeing you when we get our new space again. But in the meantime, what are y'all playing? What have you been playing recently? I can say I've been playing my, uh, I have been playing uh, 
I've I've been more my raccoon, uh, having fun in my trash pile. That is uh, cyberpunk. It's it's beautiful trash. One man's trash is another man's treasure. Uh, in my case, this trash just happens to be my treasure. Um, <laughs> that was a great analogy. I heard that game actually get worse when they release a new update. Is it real or what's happening? There were a couple issues that were fixed that I think then caused more issues. There, There's still just bugginess of like character jumpiness. And the one thing that I do kind of have to give credit to is this is like the first vertically explorable city that is of this scale, like in mm-hmm. a game with so much going on at once. So this is like an interesting thing to see them try and muster through just the large scale of a multi-level world rather than most other worlds which are just like a single level with just textures of like skyscrapers in the background Mm -hmm. or like if you enter a building you load into another single level but there's so much going on top to bottom in this game constantly that it's it's ambitious it's in it's extremely ambitious and I have faith that this game will be much more stable and I mean, I hope they live up to their promises. I mean, because The Witcher 3 was an amazing game. There was still a little clunkiness to it, but not to the extent uh, at which Cyberpunk has experienced at all. Well, no matter what, there's a long journey for that game to go. I actually have something looking forward in that game because, you know, we are most of us are audio guy. I mean, let's talk more about audio. I mean, we should have done that way earlier. And uh, what I heard from a uh, report, I think it's IGN Japan, they have been interviewing the audio team of Cyberpunk. And it turns out that there's one thing we all forgot and probably didn't notice that it's about how many sound and source of voice they're creating in just one city. Like, it's, yes. it's Cyberpunk. So I'm, I'm f- actually very interested in, in how they're going to implement those sounds and how they're managing all of those. And just because of that, I want to get a try on the game, but it just, I probably got to wait until they release it on PS4 again or yeah, themselves. That is, like, I do have to say, the sound, like, the soundtrack as far as like the music on the radio stations, it's not necessarily my critique. Um, not or not my style, uh, necessarily entirely. I mean, there is a black metal radio station, which I, that's kind of what my car is constantly tuned to. Oh well, yeah, you have said um, that. But there, it's it's very like different futuristic. Kind of feels like a uh, German techno bar mm-hmm. vibe. Uh, but it's very it's very tense. But the, like like you said, the immersiveness of the city. You are in a city when you like you put the you put the headset on or like you have decent speakers the detail like like you said you hear stuff above you below like around like all around and it's very well layered Mm -hmm. Uh, the mix is phenomenal and especially like distance wise they did an amazing job of kind of like panning and positioning of locations and what's going on they did an amazing job. Uh, it sounds incredible. And like every, like going down different halls, like echoes when you're driving through the, like the engine noise, like it's, they, they did a lot. And the guns, there's not a lot, there's like not a lot of different unique guns. You get like different rarities. And then there's like, there's different rarities you get on different guns. There's uh, like, but there's a lot of like the same variation, but the unique, 
like design of some of these guns are really cool. I mm-hmm. really enjoy like the futuristic weapons that they've developed. It's a fun game. I recommend people give it a shot eventually. I still enjoy it, but I also part of me wanted to get it early because I wanted to see the bugs because I was so interested in playing the game. I also wanted to see what the hype was. It's like, oh, what bugs? We'll see. Y'all been playing anything else? Well, I think at this point, our listeners is probably known as as pretty loyal players, but I have been looking for a few release, actually not new game release, but news news release for the next few weeks. Uh, mm-hmm. One for Final Fantasy fourteen. I guess we are Ooh. getting a 6.0 update. Huh? New jobs, Ooh. new story. Always exciting, but we know. And the other thing is Destiny 2 again for my for me, a new season. And Oh yes, uh you give your uh give us your PlayStation report as well. Oh my PlayStation uh. report. Oh oh um <laughs> Um, do I want to give that? I mean, yeah, it's not too bad. I've only played 260-something days out of 365 days. It's just a slightly more than 50%. Oh, no, actually 60%. It's it's not too bad. I mean, it's just 1,686 hours for a year. It's not too much for a gamer. No. No. No, No, right? Not at all. Yeah, and... Out of them, just about 500 hours of Destiny 2 and 300 hours of Final Fantasy 14. Not too bad. I mean, so I take it you don't like those games. Um, <laughs> um, well, I've always, I've been always criticizing them. So I guess I, well, and like that's, it's the same you know, thing the, with me in Cyberpunk. Love, I criticize let, because let, I let like me say it. That. Le- love and hate is just two sides. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. two sides of the same coin. Yeah, yes. the, uh, it feels like sometimes the more you love that game, the more you're criticizing the game. Just like me doing like doing that on Mall Center World. Well, I hope you all continue to keep playing these good games and everything else. Uh, Want to thank you all for listening to the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment's official podcast. If you have any thoughts, questions, corrections, or general museum ideas, shoot us an email at infothemade.org. That is info at themade.org. We'd like to send a big thank you to everyone who donated recently and to our Patreon supporters who keep the maid afloat. Patreon donors get to listen to this podcast one week before it's released on major streaming services, and we'll continue that with future episodes every week. Till then, I'm Miles. I'm Chin. I'm Red. And I'm Anthony. See you next time. Thanks. See you next time. See you next week. <laughs>